There used to be a talk show host in Southern California. Every year he conducted a survey among high school seniors. And he asked them one question every year. If both were drowning, who would you save first, your dog or a stranger? How do you think they responded? One third said they would save their dog. One third said the stranger. The other third said the question was too difficult to answer. So the host gave us some advice that if you're going to drown, make sure there's at least three high school seniors on the shore. The follow-up question would be though, why wouldn't you save the stranger? And of course the answer is, I know my dog. I don't know the stranger. I love my dog. I don't love the stranger. I have feelings for my dog. I have no feelings for the stranger. Do you love the stranger? Do you have feelings for someone whom you don't even know their name? Do we care deeply and passionately about where they will spend eternity, even if we don't know who they are? We do? Okay, now picture the same person in your car after they've cut you off. Or they're wearing the wrong bumper sticker or flying the wrong slogan. Now it gets tricky, doesn't it? Who are these strangers? Grady read us in Acts 17, a series of places or communities, uh, two of them were actually churches began to form of what it means, or at least Paul begin, not Paul, but Luke categorizes these places for us. And it categorizes groups of strangers and, and kind of puts a name on them gives us a, a little bit of, of how to know them and what to know them better. In verses one through 10, he tells us of Thessalonica. And when they went to Thessalonica for the first time, there were lots of conversions, but very stiff persecution. Terrorized might be a better word for it. In fact, the terror was so bad for these brand new believers in Christ that they had to be shipped to Berea for their own safety. In verses 10 through 13, we hear about Berea. And of course, some of us understand or have heard the story of Berea before. Berea was the very first place that they began to be known as what? As Christians. And what does Luke, at least, uh, say that we should um, hold uh, into account or at least hold Berea up for was that they went home and they studied everything on their own that they heard teaching just to make sure that it was true. So in Berea, lots of conversions, no internal persecution. Everything was good. Even, even there is uh, widespread re spread reports in Berea that even the Jewish citizens in Berea are leading the way in receiving the gospel. Paul must have thought like, if every town was like Berea, this is simple. Then he comes to Grady, where? Athens. He comes to Athens. The second largest city in the empire, the most civilized and cultured city in the world at the time, Athens. Few conversions, in fact, they are so few that Paul can name all of them. He can, he can actually name, and they're only on one hand that he can name them. Some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, 
and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and some others. Just a handful. Interesting, Paul never plants a church in Athens. You never get enough traction to be able to plant a church. If there's a letter to the, to the people at Athens, we don't have it. But I will tell you this, in Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White heaps praise on Paul for his efforts and his methods in Athens. She calls his ministry there, the one that had nearly no conversions, no church, calls his ministry there a victory for Christianity in the very heart of paganism. Why? Because she's not commenting on the results. She's not commenting on the results. She's commenting on Paul's method and his approach, especially in that sermon on Mars Hill. She also says this, Paul's words contain a treasure of knowledge for the church. He was in a position where he might easily have said that uh, what where he might easily have said that which would have irritated his proud listeners and brought himself into difficulty. Had his oration been a direct attack upon their gods, little g, and the great men of the city, he would have been in danger of meeting the same fate as Socrates. But with a tact born of divine love, he carefully drew their minds away from the heathen deities by revealing the true God, who was to them at that time unknown. See, it appears that Paul's tact is what she's saying was a great victory. Paul's philosophy, how he decided he was going to handle that particular way. He had been down in the city for days before preaching in the synagogue, and he was doing in the synagogue what he always did in the synagogue, preaching from the scriptures, arguing with the believers in the synagogue, going back and forth, back and forth. But when he gets to Mars Hill, he changes tactic. Something happens to him. He changes tactic. It appears that Paul has two different voices. He has a voice and a tactic when he is speaking to fellow believers, or at least people that hold, say, the same authority that all believers do, authority in the scriptures, authority in particular uh, traditions and doctrines and, and things like that. He has a tactic for them, but he also has a tactic for those on Mars Hill. So he has an inside voice, and he has an outside voice, just like we studied last week of what Jesus had. Did Jesus change his voice a bit depending on who he was talking to? Yes, he did. And it appears that the most successful evangelist after Jesus had the same tactic. So we studied last week how, how powerful a parable can be what a parable can do. We, we, uh, I pointed out that the parable in, in which Jesus, uh, the people in which Jesus uses nothing but parables to speak to is his outside voice. They are all outsiders. They're outside the fellowship of Christ. Uh, the, the people that get to hear the explanation or get to have the mysteries of the kingdom revealed to them are all on the inner circle, the 12 and the followers. The rest are on the outside. Jesus speaks to them in parables. It is his outside voice. So we began last week with the first time that a gospel writer used the word parable to describe what I think is Jesus' most significant way of teaching in that he taught them 
in parables. Just to show you where we, where we were real quick, it said he began to teach beside the sea, such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he began to teach them many things in what? In parables. And in his teachings, he said to them. So there's a large crowd and he's speaking to them in parables. As a matter of fact, he's decided that he's never going to speak to these crowds unless he's speaking in parables. It's exclusive for them. It's his outside voice. It's what he uses for those who are outside. And what makes the difference as to whether or not Jesus teaches a certain group in parables is whether or not you're on the inside or where? On the outside. When he was alone, Mark says, those who were around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the what? has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But for those outside, everything else comes in what? Parables, outside. Secrets of the kingdom, Jesus is with them. It's his presence. It's his presence and the disciples' presence and his followers' presence within that circle. That's the kingdom of heaven. That, in fact, that's, that's the church fulfilled. Where two or more are gathered, Jesus says, there I am. There's the kingdom. Everyone else is where? On the outside. So he has an inside voice and he has an outside voice. We need to learn to listen to the outside voice. Remember the first parable. I told you that we would revisit this because I think this first parable, I think has been, uh, I, you know, maybe done to death before we can re-identify it, before we can uh, bring it up to date for all of us. Because I can tell you a uh, hundred stories of how Adventists, missiologists and evangelists have applied this parable to how they do what they do. And I think we need a serious update. So remember the first parable. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell where? On the path, and the birds came and ate it. Why are the birds able to eat the, so the seed on the path? Because there's no soil, it won't go underneath. It's on top, the birds can eat it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100-fold. Remember what a parable is. It is a side-by-side -side comparison to that which we want to teach. It's an illustration that only that particular group of people were meant to hear. It's an illustration for the outsiders. And I trust that Jesus, knowing who they are, uses the exact illustration that they need in order to understand. I pointed out last week too that remember after this, those outsiders, they go home. You and I get to hear the explanation. They go home. Just knowing that the rabbi at least thought enough of them to show up in Galilee, and the rabbi knew enough about them and their life, and that he understood. When Jesus does that with his presence, 
He can let, he can go. He can let his grace and his love find that soil. It gets complicated for those inside though. Because you notice what happened immediately is that who is it that doesn't understand the parable? That the people that are on the inside, they said, tell us what this means. And I think Jesus must have smiled. I think every time they asked him what it meant, every time they asked him what a parable means, and there's not, he doesn't explain all of them, but there's some that he does explain. I think that every time they ask, I think he's got a smile. Because those on the inside asking what it means simply uh, is almost stating, you know what, since we don't know what it means, I'm not sure we belong on the inside. But so remember, a parable is this side-by-side illustration, one that, that the group of people that you're trying to reach are meant to hear. I think that's why he ends it this way. Let anyone with what? With ears, let anybody who can hear me, hear me. Could he be saying that they hear in a certain way who they are, how they're identified, their culture, their upbringing, their DNA, their spirituality, their, their, their profession, everything about them, they hear the words in a particular way. Jesus is willing to speak to them in the way that they need to hear. He speaks in a particular voice to them. They have ears. He said, I know how to speak to them because I know what they need to hear. I know where they're at. I know what they're ready to hear and what they're not ready to hear. I know what will offend and won't offend. I know what will bear fruit and not bear fruit. Inside, they get an explanation of the parable. The secrets of the kingdom. The king's right there. Since he's there, let's ask him what it means. They're in his actual presence. So we're going to look at the, the uh, explanation again, but what did we determine last week that it all boiled down to? What did it all boil down to, this, this uh, parable about the sower? What was it that truly makes the difference as to whether or not the seed will bear fruit or not? The soil. The whole thing bears on that. It goes from absolutely no fruit whatsoever because there is no soil to a hundredfold fruit being harvested. Why? Because it has all the soil it needs. And then everything else is, is on how nutritious or how welcoming or how open the soil is all up until here. That's what it uh, is down to. The sower sows the what? The sower sows the word. Okay, so what's the word? What do you think he's talking about? What's the word? The gospel. That's right. The gospel. And depending on, on, on your experience with the gospel, the gospel could be words, right? It could just be words. Uh, some people have boiled the gospel down to a formula. Some people need to look on a page to know what the gospel is. It could be. It could be just words. So I think we have been right in knowing that this parable is about evangelism. It is about spreading the gospel. It's about taking the good news of the kingdom to who? Those on the outside or those on the inside? 
It's about taking the kingdom to those on the outside. Because those on the inside are the ones that are supposed to, when they get up from Jesus' presence, to be able to do it when he's gone, right? You'll do greater things than this. Go ye therefore, where? Everywhere there's an outside. Everywhere there's an outside. And make disciples of all nations, tribe, kindred, tongue, right? So this parable is about that. It's about that process. What is the seeds that the sower sows? The word. But what's interesting is he didn't say words. In Greek, that is a noun, masculine, singular. Singular, the word. When we preach, do we use just one word? I bet a lot of you think that I should use just one word. Right? But we don't, do we? We use what? Words. We preach. We, we, we talk. I talk for a living. I talk, 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 talk. And since I do, it's what gets me in trouble most of the time. Why? Because that's what I do. I talk. Is that necessarily bad or good that we preach and proclaim? It's not necessarily bad. We've got good stuff, don't we? We got truth. We got doctrine. It's present, right? If you're going to have truth, it might as well be present truth. That's what we want. But it's fraught with obstacles, he's saying. Hard paths. What is the problem with the hard path? What did he say? Satan actually robs the seed from the hard path. And, and the way he puts it is, these are the ones where the path of the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. What do you think he means by this? Why is it that it's readily available? See, again, the hard path has no what? It's got no soil. Could it be we're throwing words at people while they're walking the hard path to where it won't ever take because we don't realize who we're talking to? We don't realize when somebody's path is as hard as a rock, then what happens to our words? Satan's able to snatch them away or turn them around or change the context of them. Again, is there any soil on the path? None. So the sower blew it there, didn't he? The sower blew it by throwing his seeds at the path. That's his fault. How about the next ones? These are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with what? Immediately receive it with joy. But they have no what? They have no root. They endure only for a while. When trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Rocky soil, is it nourishing enough to produce a a, a crop? No, it apparently is not. And these believers that don't have it uh, quite nourishing enough, um, all they need is just a little bit of trouble to come along. They're great in the good times. They heard the word and, and, and somehow uh, we told them, I shared that with you last week, somehow we told them that they just came to Jesus, everything was gonna be okay. Well, if they believe that and they join and they commit and, and the first time that something isn't okay, what happens? 
See, but again, whose fault was that? Should we plant in rocky soil? No. We got work to do. See, in, in, in this particular case, on all of these, the sower's got more work to do before he proclaims. The sower's got work to do before he preaches, before he throws words at ears who are not ready to hear. There's work to be done, isn't there? And then, of course, among those that are sown uh, on, whoops, on thorns, those that are sown in the thorns, I thought I had this here. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come and choke the word and it yields nothing. Absolutely nothing. So the thorns, again, the soil's apparently good enough for what? It's good enough for the thorns. But it isn't good enough for the crop. It isn't good enough for the fruit. So you could argue that the words, the seeds, that it wasn't the right time because it isn't the right soil. Truth, authority, scripture, preaching to them words, good words, by the way, good words. But we have to ask, who are we using the words on? Are we using the inside words for the outside people? See, out of the three communities that we mentioned in Acts 17, which one do we live in? If you were to compare North America, if you were to compare us to these three communities, which one do we live in, you think? Do we live in Thessalonica? No. The church isn't going under, undergoing that much persecution. Not like Thessalonica. Are we being threatened with our very lives to worship Jesus here? Are we be, having to be rescued by another country to keep us alive? No. Are we Berea? Are we a people that we can just open up the Bible to to anybody on the street and they will listen to us and they will know it and they will study it for themselves and they will commit and join and go win the world? Is that us? No. Where do we live? Athens. Don't we? We live in Athens. See, Athens, missiologists are clear that Athens is today's first world nation's. North America, Western Europe, Australia. Athens is indeed very religious, as Paul says. God of the month from an idol-filled menu, fascinated with theories, with what seems to be spiritual. Angels don't ask anything of you, they just protect, serve, and have a slight connection with the divine. It's safe. Athens' religion is safe. And that's the problem. Everything's a theory. There's no absolute truth. Barely three out of 10 believe in such a thing. Jesus is pretty clear. You can't have a harvest without what? Sowing. And isn't, what that, isn't that the job of who? Of the sower. Right? The problem isn't the words. The problem is that we're lousy soil keepers. And we put the word ahead of the process. We put the evangelism can't be just about reaping. It's a process. Out of the two, sowing and reaping, which is the hardest process in Athens? Sowing, 
It's the hardest, it's the longest. It's why we have, over the years, we'd rather consider reaping the whole of evangelism. We want a quick fix, we want Berean results, but we don't live in Berea. In Berea, you just preach. They'll love it because you tell them the Bible and the Bible is the truth. Athens is not a community won by logical arguments or overwhelming evidence. Most young people possess a nonlinear, fluid way of processing life. They're so increasingly comfortable with subtlety and nuance and ambiguity, even contradiction. From Generation X on, they have absolutely no problem having two completely contradictory uh, thoughts in their head. They don't care. Point it out to them that they're contradicting themselves. You know what they tell you? I don't care. It works for me. So even if you're able to weave a compelling, logical argument And yes, all of our Bible studies still say at the very end of it, does this make sense to you? See, but when you use that on a generation that doesn't care if it makes sense or not, we're using the wrong language, the wrong method, aren't we? So even if you, again, you can make sense to them, they're able to smile at you, thank you, and ignore you. A little more about this later, but one of the things that you will notice about Paul on Mars Hill is that he never mentions the scriptures. He didn't even take a Bible with him. When he was down in the city in the synagogue, he argued from the scriptures. He even took him out into the street in the marketplace, and they called him a babbler in the marketplace. I wonder if he went home that night and said, you know what, quoting from the Bible is not working here. Why? Because you live in a place that doesn't care about the Bible. Why is it that we want to give Bible studies? We've decided that the Bible is an authority for us. Does that mean it's going to be an automatic authority to everybody else out there? No. Whose job is it to point out to them that they could if they wanted to? If we were sowing, that's what we would do. Right? Athens is a nation full of outsiders. One problem I have with traditional evangelism is is that we don't actually view them as outsiders. We don't view them the way that Jesus did. In Mark, in writing writing the, the, the narrative of what happened that day by the Sea of Galilee, he recognizes it. He recognizes that we are inside and they are on the outside. Jesus wasn't subtle at all about pointing that out. And he let them know that that they were people. He let them know that he cared. He brings up their, their everyday things. He talks, he knows about their everyday struggles and their means. If nothing else, every one of them went home that day saying, you know what, that guy kinda understands me. And the disciples knew it too. But traditional evangelism, what have we done? We don't even view them as people. We call them what? We call them targets. If they're outsiders, they become targets of evangelism. How many evangelism committees have you sat in and said, who is our target audience? 
It's everybody on the outside. Well, you ever been a target? You want to know how people feel about being evangelism targets rather than being seen as people? They're not real happy about it. So we ask ourselves, first and foremost, these outsiders, are they targets for the words or are they people needing care? Are they uh, um, soil needing nurturing? The sower is responsible for this. If the seed isn't finding its way, it's the sower's responsibility. By the way, if that's what we would do, if we would simply do that, if we would find the way to be able to, to make the soil more nutritious, in other words, caring about people the way that Jesus did, treating people the way that Jesus did, you know what? We could go to sleep and the crop would grow by itself because that's the next parable that we look at, that's what, 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 what we're told we'll do. Sower sows the seed, he tends to the soil, and then he goes home and goes to bed. And when he wakes up, it grew how he does not know. We'll even tell targets that they're targets. We will tell outsiders that they're outsiders in the way that we treat them. I've been fascinated slash horrified by a book that I came across almost 16 years ago now. It was the culmination of decades of Barna's research on young people and the church. Decades of research. Interviews of thousands and thousands of people. One, probably the most uh, comprehensive study Barna ever put themselves into. Years and years, a couple of, uh, of decades of nothing but, but data that came in. And it, the research was on Christianity's image amongst North American young people, ages 16 to 29, and how the church is perceived by these outsiders. One person that they interviewed, Stephen, a 34-year-old who moved to New York from Phoenix. During the interview, he described his initial excitement when he met a peer in an unfamiliar, guy, in an unfamiliar city. A young guy approached me in a subway station once, friendly, full of questions, interested in talking. He seemed really nice, and I couldn't believe a New Yorker was being so, well, nice. We exchanged numbers and said we'd hang out sometime. Next time I heard from him, he invited me to a Bible study. And that was all he wanted to talk about. When I said no thanks, I never heard from him again. Rather than being genuinely interested in people for their friendship, we often seem like spiritual headhunters. The researchers uh, say this, young outsiders generally do not get the impression that Christians have good intentions when it, comes trying, when it comes to trying to convert them. Most reject the idea that Christians show genuine interest in them as individuals at all. This was one of the largest gaps in our research. Most Christians are convinced their efforts come across as genuine. But outsiders dispute that. When it comes to matters of faith, young outsiders are skeptical of the Jesus shtick. 
This is a key finding of our research. One third of young outsiders believe that Christians genuinely care about them. 34%, only one third. And most Christians are oblivious to these perceptions. Because you ask Christians whether or not they uh, appear to be genuine, 64% think that they appear to be genuine. So note that. Most Christians believe they come across as genuine and caring, but only a third of outsiders believe that we are genuine. Now I know what you're thinking. You say, yeah, but Greg, they're outsiders. Just the way they think. They don't get it. They haven't really experienced it. They didn't get it here, they get it out there. They get all their info from crooked televangelists and scandals. They haven't been in here. Well, consider this. Consider this when we're talking about this age group, okay? Among Christians 16 to 29, more than four out of five have already gone to a Christian church at some time in their life. Most attended for more than three months. In exploring church and the American teenager, they found the vast majority spent their entire teen years participating in a Christian congregation. Most teenagers enter adulthood considering themselves Christian, and within a decade, most have left the church. The most sobering thought is that most of the outsiders we believe are outsiders in the country, they're not unchurched, they're de-churched. There's a big difference. Barna asked again young people to identify the one activity, the one ministry event or person responsible for their decision to accept Jesus Christ. 71% listed an individual described as parent, friend, another relative, or teacher. Most described these decisions as conversations and prayer. Only one third were instances where the family or friend took them to a church or an evangelistic event. Less than one half of 1% reported that it had anything to do with radio, TV, or literature by mail. Did you hear that? One half of 1% because they saw a show or got a book in the mail. Most young people come to Christ because people know, because of people they know very well, usually in the context of everyday interaction. These stats are a little old because the church hasn't studied them again, but uh, to go along with this, do you know how people came to an Adventist church? for the past, say, 30 or 40 years in North America? How, many, how, how, how big of a percentage do you think it's people that just walked into church? Three to 4%. If they walked into church, now, you could take that as how many walked in and then decided they were gonna stay, or was it only 3% that decided to walk in? A special need? something where community services took care of a need for them, somebody where, where uh, they, they gave them food, they, they, they helped them with their mortgage, you know, something in emergency, two to three percent. How many came because they liked the pastor? Zero to three percent. 
How many came because they liked what they heard in Sabbath school? Three to five percent Sabbath school. I didn't put that one up there. How many because they were visited? This is the one that always got me. Somebody knocked on their door. 0.25 to one percent. A special program, Sabbath school, three to five percent. A special program, three to four percent. This leaves 80 to 92 percent, depending on the ranges. How do you think they came to church? Because they had family or friends. So to me, it's obvious. The right soil is what? A meaningful relationship. That's the right soil. A meaningful relationship. Somebody they like. Somebody they can trust. Now again, does the right soil guarantee a saved soul that joins, grows, and matures into a Christ-like disciple? No, it doesn't guarantee. But we don't ask that, do we? We do what we're called to do. We love as Jesus loves, and then who do we leave it up to after that? To him. But using inside language and method, attacking persons directly, direct attacks upon their gods and great men is how Ellen White put it. He could have done that on Mars Hill. He could have walked up to Mars Hill and said, for, for bright men, I've never seen uh, more stupid people in my life. Worshiping gods that aren't gods. Let me show you from the scriptures about the living God. She said he could have met the same fate as Socrates. Everyone know how Socrates died? He was forced to commit suicide because the school couldn't bear his, his way of thinking anymore. He was too different. Won't even get them in the door. What's the soil like in a church to grow a disciple? That's a whole other subject. But just remember that all the talk about being the fastest growing Protestant denomination in the world, and we look at our current membership of 20 to 25 million people, depending on who's reporting it, over the, but we have to also realize that over the past 50 years, 16 million Adventists have walked away. Just being right doesn't make us mature. Just being right doesn't make us Christ-like. In fact, being right can allow us to be pretty darn mean as a matter of fact, but that's a subject for another day. So as we go out to Athens, consider this. Athens is the, are the way they are because of this. Jesus said that in the end time, the, the reason the world is is because lawlessness is increased and most people's love will what? Will grow cold. Athens is a community of strangers and outsiders, not because they, they have no interest in Bible or prophecy. They are a community of outsiders because they're living in the end time. 
And in the end time, the one thing that leads to all of this trouble is that our love grows cold. People are looking for love. They are looking for empathy, if you will. Apathy is feeling nothing for anybody else. And Jesus didn't say that the love in the world grows cold. It's the people that are supposed to know what love is that has grown cold. It's not because they don't want to hear about the Bible or prophecy. As I pointed out, scriptures doesn't even appear uh, in Paul's dealing with Athens at all. He reaches out to them. He says to them, Athens, I observe you. I cared about you. I walked around the city for three days wanting to know more about you. And I observe that you are very religious. How about that? A worshiper of the living God commending people who worship dead gods. Respect, empathy. By the way, you know the one thing that intrigues them is the resurrection of the dead. That's what intrigues them. That's why they want to hear more. Some of them write him off. This guy's a babbler. But others, you know what? Resurrection of the dead, I want to hear more. What I think about it is that Paul is the very first resurrected dead that they've met. He's brand new, born again, uh, in soil that Christ has, has planted for him. He's the one. He is the one resurrected dead that they've met. And look at the way he's treating them. Someone who cares for them regardless of whether or not they have in any interest in scriptures or prophecy. Apathy means without feeling. So the solution to actually is to actually have feeling. To have a shot at Athens, they have to be made that we feel for them. It's not a program, it isn't a method. There's no shortcut to it. And we can't fake it. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. Died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For we took one step towards his direction. He had already died for us. And if you think that we can get away with being any less to outsiders, we are sorely mistaken. Every person has worth. Every person has worth whether or not they ever take a step towards Jesus or our church or our truth. Every person still has worth. We can't base friendship on whether or not they'll ever make a spiritual decision. Paul's points out, is going to point out to the Corinthians a little later in Acts, is that he planted, Apollos watered, but God makes the growth. We may never be the ones who get to reap. We may never get there. We may make friends and, and love people as we have been loved, and life may take them somewhere else. Somewhere else they may be able to get baptized, but that shouldn't matter a bit 
to people who are looking to truly reach outsiders. It shouldn't matter a bit to people who are looking to love people as Christ has loved them. People who are looking to try to use an outside voice. By the way, there's a lot of inside, misguided inside voices out there being hammered on outsiders that we either have to get louder with or, or block or something. In the book, Unchristian, the one I, I quoted to you from, they have a, an entire list of myths and reality about evangelism. And one is, the myth is that anything that brings people to Christ is worth doing. How many of you have heard that? We put on an evangelistic series, we spend thousands, thousands of dollars, we baptize one person. How many, how many has ever said, well, it doesn't matter, right? And true, if it costs, it, when it comes to money, there's, there's no soul that you can put a price on, right, when it comes to money. But we're not talking about just money at the price we pay. The problem isn't just cost. In our research with some of the leading mass evangelism efforts, we found that often these measures create three to 10 times as much negative responses as positive. In other words, imagine your church is considering mailing Bibles or videos or other Christian materials to homes in your community. Our research shows that the collateral damage of doing so, that those uh, whose impressions of your church and of Christianity would at times have as much negative response as positive. In other words, imagine your church is, con uh, is doing this. Why? Because that isn't what Jesus did at the Sea of Galilee, did he? He didn't mail it in. He didn't sit in Jerusalem or Bethany and say, you know what? I have this book that I wrote. Why don't we send it to everybody in Galilee and see what happens? Mass evangelism efforts are most effective with the marginally churched adults while outsiders are usually the ones that respond negatively. We're the sowers. We're in charge of the soil. People don't need words from a page. They don't need anonymity. They don't need distance. They don't need our words thrown at them from somewhere else through the mail. And we have to be careful because we have never ever at any time in the church's history had more ways of getting into people's homes through all kinds of media. We have to be very careful about how we do it, what we do it, and we have to be careful as to and sensitive to what our voice sounds like. So it's words versus the word. It's not just truths to prove somebody wrong. It's an incarnated truth. It's him. The rabbi was there that day, speaking into their lives. He's asking all of us on the inside to do the exact same thing. Again, we can't fake it. We can't shortcut it. I think this is what it means, this is truly what it means, that if we don't have enough soil, this is just too hard and most people will walk away. But I think we can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens us. We start with us, and we just begin to tell, reach people, and let them know what you and I already know, what could be done, what is possible. If we could just get them in, if we could just have the right soil, if we could just make a friend. Because always remember that when you've loved, you haven't just kept the law, you've fulfilled it. When you've shown mercy, you haven't just kept a commandment, you have fulfilled it. Jesus said, I desire, we should desire sacrifice. Not sacrifice, but mercy and compassion. If we do that, we fulfilled it all. Athens, I observe that you, I observe that you. So that was the parable of the sower and the soil. We'll move on from here. Thank you for a little extra time today.